0: Another day another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler, Hi folks this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the survival matter, podcast. As always, one man's view the changing bad. world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, even if they don't. Today is Tuesday. January the 19th 2009 this is going to be episode 359 of the survival podcast and today's going to be kind of a hodgepodge on growing things we're going to be talking about basic gardening we're going to talk about permaculture we're going to talk about greenhouses I'm going to talk to you about some maybe some plant species that you maybe haven't considered before Um just all kinds of stuff like that and I'm going to tell you <clears throat> really why I think it's important that you partake in some level, levels. So that's why I'm going to do kind of a, a hodgepodge today, kind of a, you know, not just a permaculture thing and tree canopies and not just a garden thing and not just a greenhouse, kind of mixing it together, just some different thoughts on all of it. So you can kind of pick and choose where if you haven't gotten started yet, you want to start. And if you have gotten started, where are you going to go next? What are you going to do next to improve the efficiency of your system? So that's going to be today's show. Before that, though, I'm going to knock out the housekeeping like I always do. We'll start with our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal. Um, now that I'm serving on their advisory team, I felt kind of a, a need to buy stuff from them more often just to check them out and see how they do uh, beyond what I had already been purchasing for them. So I've put in like four orders with Safe Castle in the past week and a half for different things. I just, uh, actually my latest purchase from them, I have a dehydrator, but I decided to to step up and get a really good dehydrator. So I just ordered the Excalibur from them. And I'll be doing some videos on dehydration uh, as a storage method in the future with that product. And all I can say out of Vic and his guys is they take excellent care of you. The order goes in, the order gets processed, the order gets shipped. You get a tracking number and it shows up. And what I really liked is I ordered some stuff I ordered some Yoder's bacon and uh, uh, a vacuum sealer and an Optimus Crux cooking system from them. Well, they had the Crux and the... Uh The vacuum sealer in stock, so they did a partial shipment. Uh, Some people don't like partial shipments. I like it because at least I get some of what I've ordered now. The other thing is, you have to understand, that costs the the supplier more. So they're really going out of their way if they do a partial shipment because they have to now pay shipping charges twice. Uh, So I thought what they did was great. Great sponsor. Uh, Check them out. Uh, Next sponsor of the day is the Berkey guy. Uh, Look, guys, if you don't have water, you don't have anything. Water is life. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about water today, but mostly water for your plants. Now, your plants, you can get water that's uh, that if you drink it would make you sick. You can put it on your plants and that's okay. But you have to have clean, pure water to drink. Uh, Berkey water filters are probably the best in the industry. Uh, for, for everything from shit in the fan to day-to-day use, check them out. Remember, if you're an MSB member now, when you order from the Berkey guy, there's a code in your members area to get a free Berkey Sport water bottle. Uh, so check that out as well. With that, we've got the sponsors of the day wrapped up. Let's move on from there. And uh, let's, uh, let's chat just a second about the forum today. I'm not going to go too long on it, but I just want you to understand. How many people there are there that want to help you learn more about everything that you possibly want to know about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, preparedness, and disaster planning? There's thousands. There's thousands and thousands of people there that want to help you. And they actually want to help you. That's why most of them are there. That's why most of them do what they do. And we have a terrific staff of moderators over there. I don't mention it often enough. I should thank those guys because they do a great service to keep that forum running. I didn't want to do a forum. It would have been a huge mistake. But a few people that were really, really avid listeners to the show said, hey, look, set it up. We'll help you. And uh, it grew from there to an amazing team. And those moderators, sometimes you may bump heads with them, but it's only because they're enforcing the rules, and we enforce the same rules for everybody. That's made the forum what it is. Please get involved with the forum. Check out the gear shop. Uh, we have shirts, hats. Challenge Coins, all kinds of cool stuff, some new cool ideas that will be coming. Remember, they have a, a board on the forum as well. Where you, If you want a TSP gear item, uh, if you have an idea, tell us, and we'll look at maybe putting it together for you uh, within you know whatever reason and resources are available to do it. So with, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and start the show after one last thing, and that is please consider joining the member support brigade if you haven't done so. Um, it's $50 a year or $5 a month. And I'm going to tell you now, if you're thinking about joining the monthly at 5 bucks, I might do it soon if I were you. I, I might do something I, I never intended on doing, but as I just look at the numbers and the way things work out, I might raise the monthly. This won't affect anybody who's already a member. This would be for new members to 6 bucks because there's minimum charges to take a charge on PayPal. And um, you get killed on the $5. You really do. You, you lose 25%. Uh, of it back in fees, so I might raise the monthly to six bucks in the next month or so. So if you've been kicking around the idea of just doing a monthly, you, you might want to do it that way. Uh, the other thing is there's, other, there's always going to be two other options. That's four times a year at 15 bucks, or twice a year at 30. You don't get the discount you do with an annual, but I won't raise those. There's no need to raise those. Most people don't use them, but it doesn't hurt me to have them available. So just wanted you to know that. But I'll tell you what, you're going to get a re, you're going to get a, uh, a return of your investment. On the MSP. It's more than just supporting the show at 20 cents an episode now. Uh, The discounts are extensive. Um, That's all I have to say on the members' brigade today. Let's move on. Let's start talking about the show. Let's see if I can give you that 20 cents of value today. Let's start talking about growing and producing your own food. And what I want to start out with is a solution to a problem that just seems that everybody has. It seems like no matter where I hear from people, it's too hot, it's too cold. The winters are too long, the summers are too short. The summers are too long, it gets too hot. I hear over and over why you can't garden where you're at. And some of the complaints are just a lack of knowledge. You haven't learned how to grow in your environment yet. But there is a real legitimate complaint or a real legitimate problem that a lot of people have uh, with crazy weather, especially as we move into spring. And as we move into fall, with early frosts and late frosts, they they cause a lot of problems in the garden and take out a lot of things. And then there's that whole dead period in the winter where you can't really grow much. And there's a solution to all of these things. And it's, it's even a solution, believe it or not, to when it's too hot out. And that's a greenhouse. And I think it's something that every prepper should look at installing at least a little small, you know, 5x8 or 8x12 greenhouse on your property. There's a lot of ways to do this. I mean, you can do it very inexpensively with, uh, with, with poly and uh, PVC pipes. I mean, you could build a pretty good-sized greenhouse for somewhere between 50 and 100 bucks if you do it that way. It's not a permanent structure. It's going to have problems. You're going to have to... But let's face it if, it, if it gets a hole in it, replacing poly uh, vinyl is really not hard or expensive to do. And once you've built it once, doing it again is actually going to be a lot easier because now you're familiar with it. So that's one way to do it. And if I was going to be here another year... Um, with what happened to my spring house greenhouse and uh, the big storm destroying it, um, I would probably build a polytunnel that I could just use temporarily here. I've decided that I'm just going to get by with uh, some things that I'm doing to extend winter crops this year and build a permanent greenhouse uh, when I move to Arkansas this spring. Now, let's talk about permanent greenhouses for a minute and why I think it's the way to go if you're going to be somewhere long-term. The very fact that it's permanent means it's less likely to be damaged with windstorms and things like that, um, and you have the ability to do more with it. And what I mean by doing more with it is, let me kind of give you the vision of what my greenhouse is going to be like, and then you can pick and choose the elements that you want to use from it. I'll do the. I'm going to do my greenhouse with a wooden frame. Probably use red cedar because it's a very long-lasting one, especially when it's not directly exposed to the elements. Uh, I'm going to do my greenhouse with a uh, instead of a a roof with a, a, a typical gable pitch uh, a pitch to one side and the reason I'm going to do that is because the roof and that side is going to face the primary track of the sun so it's going to get most of the sun that way um, then basically the other side wall is just going to go all the way up now why I'm going to do that I'm going to do that to specifically push all of my water to one side um, for water harvesting and that water harvesting is actually going to be contained inside the greenhouse on the uh, north wall I'm going to have built into the north wall water harvesting that's on the inside. That way in the wintertime, all of that water is actually going to heat up and retain heat. I'm going to do a slab concrete floor instead of a natural floor, and I'm going to do that mainly because it's a permanent structure and it's less long-term maintenance if I do it that way. Inside my greenhouse is going to be an area for typical greenhouse plantings, and somewhere between a 300 to 600 gallon aquaponics system also in the greenhouse. So I'm going to build a quite large greenhouse. Toward one side of the greenhouse I'm actually going to have it fenced off. So it's going to be a little bit inside the greenhouse, kind of fenced off, and on the outside of that a chicken coop. And the chickens are going to have access to actually be inside the greenhouse, but not be able to get at all the plants and everything else. Why am I going to do that? There's a few reasons. One, chickens actually produce an additional source of heat. Two, it gives the chickens a nice warm place to be in the wintertime beyond what they would normally have. Three, the chickens produce CO2. One of the things you can actually end up with a deficiency in a greenhouse at some point uh, is actually CO2 because there's not enough uh, CO2-producing uh, creatures inside the greenhouse. It's all plants producing uh, oxygen. So you get a very oxygen-rich environment. Um, coupled with the chickens, of course, the fish are respirating and they're also pulling oxygen out of the water and 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 releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. So now I have two different types of livestock supporting the plant life in the greenhouse. Uh, big thing though is the water harvesting. I'm also going to run a very um, simple solar system uh, within the greenhouse that, that is going to run the pumps for the aquaponic system and going to run uh, automated venting for the greenhouse so that once the greenhouse reaches a certain temperature there'll be a couple little vents and these are off-the-shelf products that you could buy from a lot of garden stores run a simple electric and all they do is have a thermostat and you can set it to say 85 And once it's 85 in your greenhouse maybe your vents a couple vents on the roof will open so you start to look at a greenhouse now and you start to see there can be so much more than just a place to start seeds What we have and what I've just described is a self-sufficient system that produces fish, plants, chicken, eggs, manure, compost, organic matter. And with a little bit of innovation, you can even grow a lot of the food that the fish and the chickens can use in your greenhouse. So we can grow certain things in our greenhouse, in our aquaponics system, that are specifically for the chickens or for the fish. We can bring in an extra tank, and we can grow duckweed, and we can harvest it all through the summer, and it grows like crazy, store it in the freezer, and then if the fish were growing as tilapia, we have food for the fish. So now, just with a greenhouse, just and this is going to be a sizable greenhouse, but not that big, and not that tough of a project, because building a greenhouse is a lot easier than building even a shed. Putting up greenhouse panels is pretty simplistic. So that's great, and that helps you deal with the, the cold uh, air uh, in the wintertime. But how does a greenhouse help you in the summer? Well, simply by covering, venting it, completely opening all your vents. And I'm going to actually build mine so that the walls on the sides have the ability to kind of come out and raise up so we can completely open the underneath to allow air flow throughout it. All you do then is drape sh- shade cloth over the top of your greenhouse and bring down the the solar effect of the solar gain, and you actually create a nice little haven environment in your hotter parts of the year. You can also do things such as build your greenhouse so that it will really get the sun hitting it hard all day long, okay, in your low uh, sun altitude times in the, in the springtime and in the, the uh, wintertime. But then have, you know, build it within your, your tree systems or your vining systems, especially with deciduous trees that lose their leaves, right, in the winter. So that opens it up for full exposure to the sun. But put it in a place that in the middle of the summer, when all the leaves are on the trees and the sun is higher, that it's actually shaded. And now we have a greenhouse that allows filtered light in. We can use net shading if we need a little bit more. And we can take our tender crops that won't do well outside. And we can bring in things like lettuces and spinaches that that don't do well in the summertime, and we can grow them in our greenhouse. And then as the the season begins to turn, we can close it all back down and go to wintertime operations. So that's a greenhouse, just a greenhouse. Now, people would say, so if you're going to do aquaponics, right, fish and in a system like that are you gonna have regular plants in your greenhouse as well in dirt. Absolutely. I'm gonna plan on building it big enough to kinda of have it sectioned off to like this is this side is the aquaponic side and this side is the regular side. You might say, well why would you do that? Well I want to use one structure not just to grow food, but to start plants that will actually be planted out on the property outside of that aquaponic system. And I also want to use that space in the wintertime to be able to bring in things like citrus plants and all that are in fairly large pots on casters that would normally actually be set out in the... Uh, in the environment. So my plan is to be able to take my citrus trees, instead of having like four of them sitting on a porch, uh, which a lot of people do, is actually put them out where they would go uh, in the environment if I lived in an environment that supported them all year and only pull them out of that environment at a time of the year uh, when they would be damaged. So even in the wintertime, if I know I've got a good week of, of weather that they can handle, they'll come back out of that greenhouse and go back to their location so that should allow us more flexibility that way um in addition to that you know it also gives us the ability to do things like have four or five uh, pepper plants that every year we carry through the winter i don't think most people realize this but pepper plants are generally perennials and um what that means is that if you live in the right environment a pepper plant will just get bigger and bigger and produce peppers for years and years they're actually fairly long-lived um you can easily take pepper plants five seasons or longer. And uh, I don't think most people realize that because obviously the first time you touch a pepper plant with frost, it dies. Well, these environments that we live in, these temperate climates we live in are not the native habitat of peppers. That's that's why they you know they they have a part of the time of the year where they die here because They don't grow here. That's why you seldom would see a place where peppers come back every year on their own. They grow as an annual because they're not adapted for reproduction in our temperate climates. But if we put them in a nice pot and we take good care of them, we can start our spring with new fresh peppers right away instead of waiting for those little bitty plants to grow. So a greenhouse gives us all that flexibility. Now you might look at that and go, Jack, if you can do all that with a greenhouse, why bother with the rest of the... Why not just plant big-ass trees, nuts and fruits and whatever on the rest of the property and just let it go and let it be what it is. Well, it's not completely far off of what we're going to do. We're definitely going to dedicate most of the rest of our land to producing things like uh, fruits, nuts, and berries, trees, vines, and bushes. That's that's where most of that's going to go. But we're still going to do some annual vegetable gardening for a variety of reasons. One, as good as aquaponic-grown vegetables are, I have an affinity for things that grow in the earth, so I just want some of my food to come from the dirt. Uh, Additionally, if we grow some of our food, especially during the summer, out on the property, it opens up the ability for us to grow more food in the aquaponics system for the fish and for the chickens. And what that means is we have a closed-loop system now within our aquaponics greenhouse where the chickens and the fish, by providing waste matter, are actually contributing to the food that we're feeding them. And uh, with a 300-gallon system, we'll probably, uh, we can run about uh, probably that in two 150-gallon vats. Uh, you can easily run a tilapia a gallon. There's a crazy, uh, insane density you can grow them at. But if we grow them at about 100, uh, we'll be able to uh, to bring a harvest of fish in and kind of stagger the harvest. And that's why I'm actually thinking about upping it to maybe a 600-gallon uh, system uh, with uh, two 300-gallon divided tanks is kind of how I'm thinking about doing that so that I can have four ages of tilapia at any one time um, that I'll actually probably at that point be producing some fish for market uh, and actually deriving some income off of the system uh, with that volume because I don't think my wife and I can eat 400 tilapia a year uh, with all the other things that we'll have available. Uh, but that's just an example of what one relatively small system could do. And then the way these things start to work together now, though, is we're going to put chicken runs in throughout the property where the birds can be moved to And inside the runs, we'll grow fruit trees. The fruit trees will have their roots and their lower uh, lower branches protected from the chickens, but yet as the fruit falls, whatever's waste of the chickens will harvest, use, scratch, and take care of the ground around the trees. So there's you start to see how you could take something that's... Now, here's the thing. I'm going to do this on five acres, right? And you're thinking, well, Jack has his five acres. Well, I've really got about two acres of usable land, and I've really got about an acre and a half of truly, really easily used land. So this can be done on most you know, half-acre to one-acre lots uh, in many suburban environments. You can do these same things. In fact, in some ways, it would actually be easier because most suburban lots are flat and they have decent solar exposure. And if not, there's a few things you could do to open that up, whereas we're sitting on a mountain ridge in between two other ridges on steep, rocky ground, and we have a lot more work that we have to do to make this stuff happen. So if we could do it there, you could do it anywhere else. Some of the other things I'd like to talk to you though about though are, you know, the fruits, the trees, the bushes, the vines, and things like that. There's no better return of investment than that. The thing about gardening, and I, and I don't want to put this the wrong way because I love to garden. I'm going to garden every year until I'm too old to do it anymore. When I, when, and in fact, by the time I'm too old to garden, I'm probably ready for the box. You know, when I can't at least, you know, kind of mosey out there, even if it takes me half a day to get there and pull a weed or to an eat a tomato, I, I don't know if I'm going to want to even be here anymore at that point in my life. Um, it, it, let's not get it downer. But the, the thing about gardening is it is work, and it's it's ongoing work, it's continuous work. E- even even in a permaculture system and a heavy mulch and good soil, you have to go out and you have to plant and you have to harvest and you have to plant and you have to harvest. You have to plant where when you deal with perennials for your environment, your climate, where uh, they'll continue to produce for you, even perennials that need the greenhouse for part of the year that you move in, Okay, you harvest, and it just does what it does. And eventually you might move it to a greenhouse for a few weeks, and you move it back out. But you don't have to plant again. You don't have to worry about the plant failing again. Once it's established, Right? it becomes a food production machine. So some of the things I want to talk to you about are maybe some of the... Uh, the plants today that you might not have ever considered, um, growing in your environment and maybe some things that you didn't think you could. It, let's say you think you grow too far north for strawberries. Strawberries. Most strawberries are generally hardy to about zone five, and even at zone five, you start to have problems in the northern parts of the zone five. As you start to get close to zone four, uh, a lot of times even in zone five, they, you know they'll grow, they'll survive, but they don't thrive. They don't produce a lot. Well, you can grow them in your aquaponic system. Strawberries are dynamite in an aquaponic system. Now we have an aquaponics plant that's a perennial that we just pick berries from, right? But we've got a limited space there. Maybe you can put a tower in and, and do part of your drainage through it. But wouldn't it be nice if you live somewhere in really cold climates, the colder parts of Zone 5, Zone 4, Zone 3, to be able to grow, and grow a strawberry? They're called alpine strawberries. They're a little bit smaller than a typical strawberry, but they handle those environments well and they grow well. So if you're a northern grower and you want to grow strawberries, look at growing alpine strawberries. And now you've got a ground cover. So now you've got something that performs a natural mulching function for you. Um, and is very, very hardy and will grow in just about any soil type. And here's the thing about hardy plants that, that grow in, in, in kind of depleted soil. That means they don't need a lot. So if you enhance the soil where they're growing and companion plant them, they leave a lot behind for a plant that maybe needs it a little bit more. So that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you just briefly today about, you know, alpine strawberries and considering those if you're a northern grower. Let's look at something else. I mean, one of the things that I see every time I look at all these great permaculture videos and these guys are bouncing around the subtropics and the tropics, you know, climates in India and in the tropical regions of Australia and uh, Thailand and in the Orient and in Hawaii. It seems like these guys are always in this equatorial belt region where they don't have to worry about things freezing, right? So one of the things that they like to do, and I think this makes a lot of sense for us to do too, is plant climbing things so that they start taking advantage of vertical space. And then one of the great perennial things to plant in those environments that's beautiful and produces food is passion flowers. And passion flowers, of course, produce passion fruit. There's a problem with that. Even the hardiest passion flowers um, struggle in Zone 7. Even a few of them that are rated for Zone 7 struggle. Most of them will actually struggle in the winter in Zone 8, die. They need to be brought inside. They just can't make it out there. But what's amazing is that right here in North America, in our temperate regions, we have our own uh, passion flower that most people have never heard of or thought of or considered. It's called Maypop because it literally... Pops out of the ground in May uh, once the ground is warm enough for it to grow. It produces a uh, a really cool fruit, about two inches long, and uh, it'll come back every year and produce those fruit every year. When it freezes, it freezes right to the ground, mulch the root system, and uh, it can get through. It'll go- it'll grow just about anywhere where temperatures don't fall below twenty decrees below zero if you give it a little bit of extra care and good solar exposure and it'll come back every single year and produce passion fruit right here in the temperate regions of North America. Isn't that cool that we can grow passion fruits if we just get outside of this the kind of the the, the 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 box that we lock ourselves into. Another tree that I want to, a tree this time I want to talk to you about that is really an amazing tree for what it produces. It's native to the northeastern United States, and it's slow-growing there, and it's even more slow-growing in other locations. I still recommend you plant one. I recommend you plant one soon, if you have enough space. If you're in a limited space environment, let's say you have a half-acre lot, you probably don't want to do this. right? If you have more than an acre, you probably want to plant a couple of these things. It might take 15 years for them to start producing. But if you start, if you plant them now, in 15 years you'll have them. And if you plant them five years from now, it'll be 20 years. So, you know what to do. Go ahead and do it, right? So, what is this tree? It's called a pawpaw. The pawpaw produces, it almost tastes like a vanilla custard banana tasting fruit. You basically just cut it open, pitch the seeds out, and eat it with a spoon right out. Like it almost comes in its own little bowl. And it's a beautiful, lovely fruit. And it'll grow in most of the United States from the south to the north. And there's things that you can do to increase the growth of a pawpaw tree, and that's recreate its natural environment. It's an understory tree. It likes well-prepared uh, soil because it's growing toward the forest edges as an understory, right? So as a canopy comes down, it's one of the lower trees out toward the edge. So it gets good sun exposure, but through modeling shade. Because it's growing on a, in a forest floor, it grows natively in very rich, nutrient-dense soil. So you have to create a good growing environment for your pawpaw. So tremendous amounts of mulch, lots of enrichment of the soil. Start out with good soil in the first place. Create an environment where it gets good solar exposure modeled shade and give it lots of water, and you'll shorten maybe a 15-year period down to 7. It can be done. I've seen it done, even though it's been doubted by a lot of people that you can get a pawpaw into production in 7 years. It definitely can be done if you give it that type of intensive management, uh, and do a lot of legume cropping around it to put a lot of nitrogen in the soil for it. Uh, again, recreating its natural environment is key to its success. So the pawpaw tree, So that's another one to look at and consider. But look, hey, we got to eat, right? So what are some things that we can put in the ground that will start producing for us much much faster um, hard to beat blackberries and raspberries uh, generally you need a second season for them uh, to start really producing a lot of times you can buy plants that are mature enough you get a little tiny harvest your first year but then you're cutting canes back and waiting for regrowth and your second season but your second season a row of raspberries or blackberries will produce more food than you can eat Absolutely more than you can eat at any one time. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant to plant any blackberries uh, in a lot of the places in the south, though, because with a little bit of detective work, you can probably find massive numbers of wild blackberries somewhere near you, anywhere from Texas to Florida and up and through the Carolinas. Uh, When I was a kid in Florida, one of our our favorite activities when we were kids is as the blackberries would start to come into fruiting, as we would just walk the roads. And wherever there was little brambles and stuff like that, there'd be blackberries. And we could fill up a couple gallons of blackberries relatively easily uh, just walking around uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida area. Uh, when I moved to Pennsylvania later, just before I started my high school years, uh, didn't have blackberries like that. Then we had strawberries and blueberries. So I guess that's my other point. It's not just what can you grow, but what's already growing in your area. Now, You have to look at that one, and you have to make kind of an informed and enlightened decision. If blackberries grow native in your environment, and they're out there and you can go pick them, it may still be a good idea to plant them. Because if they grow natively, they'll probably grow even better if you take kind of an enhanced variety and give it some TLC and tender loving care. The reason I'm hesitant to do it is they're already on my property. The native plant is already there. So there are certain areas we may just clear out and mulch the heck out of. We've done this in areas, and that's another thing you need to look at. What's already growing there that's edible? Can you enhance the environment for it? And there's a lot of different ways to enhance. Enhance doesn't always mean make it grow more or faster. Sometimes it's controlling growth in certain ways. For instance, with blackberries, we want more growth and more water retention, and we want it... To do more, and just by mulching the heck out of the blackberry bushes on our property in a couple areas, we've increased the size of the berries two to three times. And they're sweeter and juicier. And that, you know, they're not as big as a domestic blackberry, but they're, they're, they're kind of right between the typical wild and a domestic in size. And it's just because they get that perfect environment to grow. Right? So, that's one way to look at it. But when it comes to enhancing a native plant, sometimes enhancing actually means restricting it. How could that be, okay? One of the best eating things, one of the the herbs that's a good pot herb for eating it can be used to make uh, wine, it can be used for medicine. It is probably the most versatile plant in the world, and it is hated throughout America because of what it because it grows in people's beautifully manicured lawns is a dandelion. I don't know if you've ever eaten dandelion leaves. A lot of people will say, "Oh, you could eat dandelion if you need it and, and, but they've never tasted it. Go find you a dandelion leaf growing out in the middle of a field in the sun and eat it. It's extremely bitter. Um, there's ways to deal with that bitterness, uh, such as you can boil the greens a few times and you end up with you know dropping the water out and then boiling it a second time and then eating it and you get a, a fairly good Cooked green, and it's 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 not bad. It's a lot like your typical southern cooked greens, like collards or whatever, once they've been boiled. But I'm not a big fan of greens that have been cooked down and are kind of that that squishy. Uh, the, the kind of like the spinach kids always hated to eat as a kid, because instead of putting the spinach in a salad, mom and dad gave them frozen cooked spinach, and they didn't like it, right? So I'm not a big fan of that type of texture. I'll eat it if I have to. I'll eat it once in a while just because. But I much prefer greens to be fresh. So how do we get dandelion greens to taste good fresh? Well, we shade them so they get very little sunlight, just enough to grow, and we pick the leaves when they're small. And if we do that and we mix them in with other greens so their bitterness is counteracted with something else that's a little bit sweet, we end up with a very nutritious source of of vitamins and minerals and food and fiber that's palatable because we've changed the environment just a little bit. So as you can see, if we start talk, as we start talking today with a greenhouse and some of these exotic things and we're moving back to natives, what we're able to do is go into any environment and if we'll observe and interact, which is the first principle, when it comes to active permaculture, when we actually start doing things, we go, okay, well, we know the care of the planet, care of the earth, care of people, return of surplus. Those are the, the, the kind of the the uh, the ethics ethical principles. But when we say, okay, now we're going to start actually putting our hands in the earth, we're going to actually start doing something. Well, before we mess with things. We're called on to observe and interact. If we look at the way successful things are actually growing on their own without interference in our environment today, and we replicate those things and enhance those things and control and direct those things, then we're able to actually improve on nature. Which sounds like a very arrogant thing to say, but it's absolutely what we're doing. Let's let's look at the BlackBerry example before anybody gets upset and thinks I'm playing God here, because I'm not. I'm talking about understanding nature and using natural principles to create an optimal environment. So we have blackberries, and they're growing. And we notice that they're always growing in the edges. So they need shade and sun. You never see them way out in the middle of a field. Now, I've never seen a blackberry bush in the middle of a field. I've always seen it at the edge of woodlands. So we know we need shade and sun mixtures. We notice that it seems to grow better with, 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 with morning sun. All right? We also notice that the places that kind of have a depression around them, where water naturally pools, was where the best blackberries are. So we select that site that's already been somewhat optimized by nature. Now we go on the backside of the depression and we put in a berm to help better retain the moisture, right? and we mulch it five inches deep. And we start improving the soil around it. And then we look at the things that are competing with the blackberry for that little space. And we prune them out and we mulch them to death. So that the blackberry bush or a clump of bushes gets that three foot or four foot square area. Now, then we end up with a blackberry bush that's extremely productive, growing in native soil, started out there in the first place. Nobody ever planted it. But it's under conditions that nature would have never created. Nature would have never built that berm. Nature would have never sloped things the way they did. And then we pull in a little bit of drip irrigation for the dry times of the year when even the water harvesting that we set up doesn't work. Now we have a completely natural system. Everything that we've used, except maybe some drip line, exists on the property and is natural. We use rock and dirt for our earth shaping from the property. We use leaf litter as our mulch. If you're near a wood line where the blackberry is growing anyway, walk ten feet into the woods, and all the mulch you need in the world is sitting right there. Throw it through a shredder and toss it down. Everything's natural, but it's better than nature can do. It's amazing when we think about that, but you know the only way that man can improve on nature? The only way that man can improve nature is to not be at war with nature. But to be its ally. See, the problem is that when this is why we get we cringe when we hear about improving natural systems and improving nature. Right? Because we're like, oh, we're playing man then we start thinking about man playing God and, and doing genetic engineering, which I'm totally opposed to, by the way. And and a lot of other things that we think of. We think of man improving nature by plowing a field straight. Well, you know what? Attacking genes. And using giant mechanized machinery is just like, it's warfare, folks. When we go to war, we get great big giant tanks and airplanes and we attack the enemy. And when we, when we farm today, we send great big giant tractors out that replace the tanks and we spray from the air these chemicals. And we go and we have biological and mechanized warfare against nature. And then we think we're improving nature. But do you see how different those two systems are? Let's talk a little bit more about some of the other things that you can bring into natural systems that are maybe uh, uh, would could be considered invasive by a lot of people. There's a lot of people that are really big into uh, native plantings. Native plantings. Well, I, I hate to break the news to you, but if you live anywhere from you know from Florida to Alaska or California to Maine, there ain't a hell of a lot that you eat that's a native plant. Peppers aren't native. Tomatoes aren't native. Beans are native to much of the area, so you can have your beans, sort of. Most of the beans you eat are probably not native to the area you live in. Squash is native to a lot of the area, some of them, not all of them. But the majority of the things you eat every day are not native to North America, and you're in North America, so if you're only going to grow native plants, you're going to be eating a lot of grass, my friend. So I'm fine with bringing in outside species, and if we practice... The right things, we end up with a species that becomes part of the ecosystem. And there's, I I really hate the term native when it comes to plant life or any form of life. I really don't like it. And I'll tell you why. At one time, at one time, there was one giant landmass on this planet, and continental drift broke the planets up or they broke the broke the planets up. That would be bad, right? That that would be something to prep for. The planet's breaking up. No, broke the continents up. That's why we have earthquakes still today. Cuz the continents are still moving. At one point in time, every every piece of land on this planet connected to each other. And even since they've split apart, isn't it amazing to you that we have oaks that are native to Europe, oaks that are native to China, oaks that are native to North America? We have very, very similar species. They're different, because they've evolved differently, but they're almost the same. That's because they're, the only native that we have is native to the planet. And people can say things like, well, look at the kudzu. Look at the kudzu. Look at kudzu's done to the south. Have you ever noticed that kudzu doesn't cause a problem in, in the deep swamps where it's thick? That it's always on the edges, that it's always in the environments that we've created in our cities? The clear-cutting, these giant swaths on the side of our... Uh, our our uh, our highway system. They go in and they clear cut a bunch of pines. The next thing you know, in Georgia, it gets covered in kudzu. Have you noticed that where kudzu is native, it doesn't cause a problem? Why? Because the people eat it and they feed it to their livestock. It doesn't grow slower in its native habitat. Please. It's not like there's some secret creature that comes out and eats, you know, three times its own weight kudzu every day. It's all about systems and balance. That said, kudzu is probably one of the plants that really is a dangerous invasive species. Uh, if not kept hundred percent under control, it reproduces very, very fast. And I'm not for putting kudzu in your backyards, but some of the things I'm going to talk to you today about, I find very non-threatening, non-native things that I think make a lot of sense in your backyard. Let's start out with what are called edible dogwoods or cornelian cherries. Uh, these things produce just a massive amount of fruit, massive amount of fruit, and they 're beautiful like the dogwoods we see in you know in d c in the springtime. Everybody wants to go to d c and see the dogwoods in bloom. Well, you get that same effect, but these things are from oh they're from all the way down near the grecian coast in Crete in that area, and some varieties all the way up into uh into to Russia so they're able to handle a variety of climates um, they come in reds and yellows. They produce an abundance of fruit. They're good for fresh eating. They're good for uh, drying, and they're good for making wines. They're good for making juices, jellies, and sauces. What, what more could you want? And they grow on a tree that you know typically can be easily pruned into kind of an eight-foot beautiful tree that can be used in a permaculture system as an understory tree, or in a suburban environment as a gorgeous little ornamental that actually, actually produces food. So, so look at cornelian cherries as one of the things that you might consider. Um, growing, If you have some space, one of the things that's, that is native to North America that you might consider growing, might not be native to your area, is filberts. And, and filberts and chestnuts both have got a bad rap over blight. Well, if you bring it in, you might bring the blight back. Well, the only thing that blight kills is a chestnut. And there's blight immune and blight resistant cultivars of uh, chestnuts and filberts now. So I definitely recommend those, but I find it a little bit strange that somebody's worried about You plant a chestnut tree, you could bring blight here. What kind of blight? Chestnut blight. How many chestnut trees are around here? None of them. Why? Well, because they bring blight. What does the blight do? It kills chestnut trees. It's kind of a stupidity circle, as I call it, right? So, so filberts or hazelnuts, however you want to call them, I, I think are an amazing crop. There's so much you can do with hazelnuts. They're a great fresh-eating nut they produce very very heavily um, if you start them they'll start to spread uh through their root system over time and you end up with you end up with just like a huge long hedge you can put them all the way along a fence row and actually make a natural fence with them uh if you wanted to or use them to kind of cover up uh a, a man made fence if you grow enough of them, the squirrels are going to take their share. But fine, shoot a few squirrels, throw them in the pot. You've got kind of a symbiotic relationship there, and you're still going to have an abundance to harvest for yourself. Deer will take them too, but they they generally deer don't generally eat hazelnut leaves. They they eat the nuts, right? So they're not. Uh, it's a it's a crop that's highly deer resistant until harvest time. So you only have a limited time of the year that you really have to protect them. Now, but what do we get out of a hazelnut other than a great? I love I love eat filberts. Well, you know, Thanksgiving, when I was a kid, my family would always have a great big thing of mixed shelled nuts on the table, and a couple of nut crackers out, and you crack your own nuts, and it's kind of the only time of year we actually did a lot of that. Um, and then walnuts and pecans and all. Man, I would eat every filbert out of that pile. So it's a great eating nut, but it also makes a wonderful substitute, uh, grain flour. Uh, you, you, you grind filberts and you get hazelnut flour, and it's great in making pastries and all, but it's a good, it's a good, calorically dense grain substitute. So, now we're starting to look at how we can kind of compensate for the things that are hard to grow. It's not really easy to grow any real quantity of wheat or barley or rye. It can be done, but it's tough and it's a low return of investment. That stuff is so cheap that unless we get into, uh, you know, a shit hit the fan where you need to uh to to grow your own to have any at all, you're probably better off buying it. But can we can we supplement some of our need for grains, uh, with things that we can grow on our property, and hazelnuts or filberts, however you want to call them, and even chestnuts are, are kind of a good way to do that. Another item that works good for that, you, you generally, if you buy a piece of land of any size, there'll be a few of them on it, in most of North America are acorns, you know, oak trees. Really, white acorns are the way to go with that. There's less tannin, and less bitterness, and less work involved. But a good, you know, maybe one or two big Oaks, white oaks that produce big crops of white acorns, you'll usually get a crop, a heavy crop every other year out of them. They usually don't uh, have mast every single year. So if you're managing acorns for, you know, deer and squirrel and turkey, you want a mix of red and whites. For human consumption, you can eat the reds, I prefer the whites, Uh, but you can get out of a single year, two years worth of acorn flour, that uh, takes some work to produce, but once it's done, now you have another grain substitute. And since we're not giving up grain, we're just using it as an adjunct, now we have yet another source. And there's so many things that we can do with this that, this with, that are native. Uh, a great grain substitute. Uh, that is part of a, you know, a plant that's not native, but now it might as well be native, uh, is lamb's quarters. Lamb's quarters is a, basically an invasive weed now. Grows everywhere. Great green that you can eat, uh, fresh or steamed. Uh, but the seed heads can be harvested and actually produce a really good, highly nutritious grain. So, there's another grain substitute of something that you can probably find a field of it growing, uh, somewhere for free. There's just so much food already here, And so much food that we can produce that it's amazing that we don't think about this on an ongoing basis. Here's another one, sunchokes or Jerusalem artichokes. They're called both. Um, They're little sunflower-looking plants. I've seen these things literally infesting, literally infesting fields from Texas to California and back. And I don't know where else they're in, they're infesting things. I'm sure they're up into Oklahoma. I'm sure anywhere you have these open prairie scapes and things like that, and these roadsides with wood 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 lined uh, wood sides, that there's Jerusalem artichokes. And you dig those things up in the fall, and the tubers are a great potato substitute. So you can either plant some on your property. Odds are you don't need to. Odds are this is a plant that you could find in a wild environment. And odds are if you went out and found a a, a farm somewhere where the guy has a little bit of untended land and those things grow and said, hey, can I come here in November and dig up some tubers from these things every year? The guy would say, I could care less. Go ahead. You know, ask permission before you go on somebody's property. But I don't think it's something that you're going to have any trouble uh, getting permission to do. And honestly, I've seen them grow in so so much public land. And I don't think you'll have much... I've never had problems uh, with removing them from any kind of public, you know, landscape, uh, off highways or things like that. As long as you put the the land back the way you get it. I've been asked one time, hey, what are you doing? I explained it to a cop. He thought it was cool, and he asked for one. I gave him, like, four. So here you go. Uh, and I told him what to do with them. So... There's an abundance out there, and it it could be a combination of what's native and growing around you and the things that you grow for yourself. But it's all about having vision and understanding and knowledge. And why is this so important anyway? Why do I why do I spend so much of my time telling you guys about gardening, permaculture, aquaculture, small scale livestock, bringing in things like foraging, uh, using native plants that are already there and enhancing their growth in a permaculture system? All of you, why do I even bother with this? Well, I talk about it and I do it and I explain it and I teach about it and I demonstrate it. I do all these things because I want more for you out of a prepping lifestyle than just insurance. Let, let's be honest for a second. Wouldn't it be easier if I just said, look, you want to be prepared, you need to save up about $5,000. Take that $5,000 and go buy these things. And we invested it all in long-term storage. We put a lot into things that were extreme long-term, last resort storage, like wheat and barley and rice. And with some wheat and barley and rice... And then some things that are a little bit more palatable, long-term storage like Mountain House and things like that. Did a little bit of our own preparation and production of long-term storables. Learned how to use them invested in some, a couple good guns, not really expensive guns, but good guns for self-defense, and just put all that stuff in a place as something to cook with and some emergency supplies and said, okay, about five grand will get you 90% of where you need to be. And then over the next few years, add a few thousand dollars worth more, worth more in supplies. And every once in a while, take some of that food and rotate it and keep replacing it. And that's it. And that's how to do that. Now let's talk about tactical stuff and things like that. Wouldn't that be an easier solution? The answer is it absolutely is not an easier solution. Because what it does is it frees you to just live life like everybody else around you and know that if things go wrong, well, you have plan B. Problem with that is that often it will lead you into having worse behavior than those around you when it comes to debt when it comes to spending, and when it comes to lifestyle, because you're thinking, hey, if everything blows up, I'm okay. If everything doesn't blow up, I'll just live like the rest of these jackasses. And that's a hard life. It's a hard life because it's a life that is is honestly a form of slavery. This nation, I've said it before, is enslaved by debt. We are under the chains of debt. And that is an orchestrated, well-thought-out plan by the international bank cartel to make a ton of money off of your back. And you might think, well, they don't make that much off of me. They don't make that much off of me either. But they can make a little bit off of all of us, and there's millions of us. And that turns into billions of dollars. And that's how the system works, and that's why we have to be good quality anarchists. you know what a good anarchist is? A good anarchist says, hey, things like the speeding laws, I'm going to follow those. Right? That's dangerous. I'll get killed and I'll hurt somebody else. So even though I'm a nonconformist, I'll conform to that. Because that makes sense. But then the the, the the good quality anarchist goes, so, living on an average of $20,000 in consumer debt is conformity. I don't think I'm going to do that. Working a job you hate for 50 years to retire at the poverty level is conformity. I don't think I'm going to do that. Now, how the hell is this related to what we're talking about today? Gardening, permaculture, things like that. It's intrinsically related. And the reason that's the case is because there are... Certain needs that we learned even in the most fundamental, rudimentary survival training. If we're going to train somebody, okay, if you're lost in the woods, you have certain needs. And there's shelter, food, water. That's what we need. We need shelter, food, and water. If we have that, and you can say fire. But fire to me is part of shelter. It's energy. Without the shelter, the fire doesn't do much, right? If we just have a campfire, we have like a, a, a six-inch circle outside of the you know, six-inch band that we can actually sit there and get warm and our back's cold. If we want to actually make the fire productive, we have to be able to channel it. So no matter what we do to survive, to follow the rule of survival, primary rule number one, be alive and breathing tomorrow. If you don't do that, you failed to survive, right? Pretty fundamental. So if we create a system that produces food on an ongoing basis for us with very limited inputs once that system is in place, then what we do is we create for ourselves a virtual grocery store. We basically live in the center of a giant grocery store. And then the work that we do outside of our own system, our jobs, if you want to call them that, if that's what they even end up being anymore, because of your reduction in dependency, because you don't have debt, Maybe you slave away at a job for 10 years to completely pay off your property. And 10 years of work puts you into a paid-for house on paid-for property with no consumer debt and a functioning system like the one I'm talking about. You have the rest of your life with to do as you damn well please. That's liberty. And anything else ain't liberty. And liberty starts in a garden. The other reason is because if we want to d- deal with disaster, then we follow a martial arts principle. It's one thing to block my opponent's blow. But if I'm smart, I simply move away and allow my opponent's blow to pass by me. That creates a vulnerability in my opponent, which I can strike. Well, if we want to advert disasters, instead of getting out of the way, what we actually need to do is preempt them. So what are the things that cause Disasters. We can say, well, nature causes disaster, Jack. It's not man. I mean, sometimes it's man, but most of them. Look at the earthquake in, in, in Haiti. That's what the, the earthquake caused a disaster. The, the earthquake caused an acute event, an extensive loss of life and property that is tragic, I admit. The real disaster is happening now, almost a week later. As the shortages of things are beginning to hit people hard, as the crowded living conditions in the cities are resulting in extreme shortages, even though there's less people now there because many of them died, even though there's in some ways there's more food there because people are bringing it in. The entire condition of high-density population in an urban environment with people that weren't prepared, many of those people, because they're not like you, they didn't have the financial means to do so. See, I don't care if you tell me, well, I only make 25000 a year. Those people make a dollar a day, or some variation thereof. You can be prepared for at least that type of an event. If we're prepared, we avert the real disaster, the aftermath. As bad as Hurricane Katrina was, the two weeks after it were worse. As bad as the Her- Haitian earthquake ends, the, the aftermath is worse. And only when people think do we avoid true catastrophe. When when Ike was going to hit Galveston, 99% of the people that lived in Galveston and on on that south shore paid attention when they were told, Get out. And that's why it didn't turn into a Katrina. Not because there wasn't a Superdome there, not because anybody in the government hated anybody, but when people were told, Get out, they got out. But again, this is all interrelated. So you say, well, Jack, what if I create this great food production system? And I get hit by natural disaster and it wipes it out. Well, hopefully you've created enough redundancy in it that it'll come back, that it won't be completely wiped out, that there'll even be some there. And hopefully you've been practicing eat what you store and store where you eat, and you've been converting a lot of the things that you're producing into long-term storables, and now you can live on that until you rebuild. But if we can create a nation where 10% of us live this way, We'll never have the we'll never have the problems that people talk about. People running around in motorcycle guns and raiding houses and you know, people coming to steal your food and all of these thoughts. Do you know that ten percent of this society could create such an abundance that the other two hundred and ninety million what would it be? be, Uh the other two hundred and seventy million. The other two hundred and seventy million couldn't eat it all. If we really work at this, and I'm not saying you have to be somebody that's producing that much, but if you do a little bit And we we actually create a counterculture revolution built around liberty. And we do that through the ability to produce our own food. We can get to a point where this nation is self-sufficient with food again. Do you know that this nation used to be touted as the nation that fed the world? Not that we led the world, we fed the world. We produced so much food in this nation. So much more than we could consume. That we were an abundant exporter of food. We were a net exporter. And what that meant is if you made a list and said, here's all the food that the United States imported last year, brought in from outside, here's all the food that the United States exported out, the difference in the two would be a positive balance to the exportation. Meaning we were sending more food to the rest of the world than we were taking in. We were the world's breadbasket. We fed the Soviet Union our mortal enemy, during the height of the Cold War in the 70s when they were really down hard due to the weather over there and the failure of their own crops we fed our enemy at the height of tension with our enemy that's what this country did it may be a big reason that we never made the biggest mistake of all during that time because there's a certain psychological thing that happens when you feed your enemy he stops being so much your enemy that's what we were Do you know what happened around February of 2008 for the first time in history and the trend has continued to get worse and worse and worse? The United States switched from being a net exporter of food to being a net importer of food. What that means is we put those same two rows of numbers together and the amount of food coming in is greater than the amount going out. Do you know what that means? That means if right now we shut down all importation of food and shut down all exportation of food, and so this nation will feed itself, that we cannot. We can't do it right now. We don't produce enough food to feed our nation anymore. let say that again. We do not produce enough food to feed our nation anymore. Now, can you fix that tomorrow? Can you go out there tomorrow and start, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up the delta. The 500 billion hectares, or whatever the hell it is, of wheat, I'm going to grow all that in my my backyard behind my swimming pool. No, can't. But you can start to feed yourself 20% of what you eat, 15%, 10, maybe over time 50, maybe over time 70. I don't know. But if you take and start to feed yourself some, you take the stress off the system. You allow the system to work better. And then you partake in the system as you choose. See, that's the difference with a modern survivalist as an anarchist and the traditional vision of anarchy or nonconformity. We're not a bunch of kids. and Sit around, right? And I'm taking some of the stuff off of a post that was inspired by a concept Sister Wolf came up with on the forum yesterday. But when I saw what she said, we took the word ANT, and, and we were going to make an acronym out of it. And the one she came up with for N was nonconformity. What I said is, when we we nonconform, we're not like a bunch of teenagers that all dress exactly like all the other nonconformists, sit around and smoke dope and listen to angry music. The way we nonconform is selectively and by choice. And by doing that, we improve and empower our lives. You might think it's Jack getting a little bit Tony Robbins on us. You know, a little bit motivational speaker. Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit today. But only because I care. Only because I give a damn. And only because I believe that it's foolish for human beings to lose the capability and the knowledge that they have to have to feed themselves. And... How to drive to Kroger and how to do your job and earn a paycheck and how to use your debit card and your discount card and your coupons to buy food from Kroger and bring it home and how to cook it on the stove and how to put it in your refrigerator and your freezer and in your pantry is not how to feed yourself. It's how to use the resources around you to consume things that were produced by others. And it is a valuable skill, and as sad as it is, people are losing that skill. There's people that haven't made themselves something to eat in 10 years. They live on restaurants and fast food because they don't even know how to cook. I couldn't fry a freaking egg. But in spite of the fact that that's a problem, that's not, the, that's, that's the minor problem. The bigger problem is people think a carrot comes from a grocery store. People think a steak just shows up magically, wrapped in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in clear wrap. You know? That's, that's where a steak They don't understand what a cow is anymore. We have a nation of people that no longer know how to feed ourselves, and two generations ago, we were a nation of farmers. In two generations, the knowledge gone and even the farmers that are left today i don't mean to put anybody down but if you're growing 80 acres of corn followed by 80 acres of soybeans followed by 80 acres of corn followed by 80 acres of soybeans you're actually part of the problem at this point because back in the day even when people grew that they grew other things There was at least a garden plot to feed the, the family on the farm we don't even have it anymore. We don't really have that many family farms left. It's all gone to corporate agriculture. Guy drives a combine. That's his job. That's all he does is drive a combine. He just follows the harvest. Farmer doesn't even take part in the harvest anymore. A lot of times, he probably hired the, the, the actual farmer. If you want to call it the guy that owns the land, he hires somebody to prep the field, to to, to, to spray the field. He watches it. And hopes the bad things don't happen and ruin his profit that year. That guy can't feed himself honestly anymore. Give him an acre and say, feed yourself. I'll say it's not enough land. When you give a a well-informed person an acre, they can feed a family with it. At least half of that family's needs. You start bringing some livestock and some aquaculture and some things like that into it, and they can damn near feed a whole family off of an acre you got a family out in Southern California producing 6,000 pounds on a tenth of an acre. What do you think those people would do if you gave them an acre of good fertile land in the middle of Illinois? Where it's being turned into dust by modern agriculture. See, folks, this shit is serious. And I, I don't cuss as much as I used to anymore, I guess, because I'm not angry, I'm not on the road, but there's times when I'll use the occasional piece of profanity to wake you up. And I want you to understand, this is, you know, that guy that asked me long ago, are you, to bake a pie next. This is not about baking pies. This is about making sure that when you wake up tomorrow morning, that your stomach has food to go in it, and the stomachs of your children has food to go in it, and if you don't grow it, then who will? Because there's less and less people farming in this country every single year, because it's getting harder and harder to make money. So we're exporting that responsibility to the third world, where people will still work that hard and long for very, very low wages. And we're getting everything we can out of the chemical factories we call farms in the United States through mechanization, and if it can't be done that way, then to hell with it. And we have droughts, and we have environmental concerns that are legitimate, and we have environmental concerns that are illegitimate, and both of them, due to reality and, on the other side, overreaction, are causing us to be able to produce less food. So there will be less food produced in the United States next year than this year. And there will be less the following year. And there will be less the following year. And there will be less the following year unless you, and people like you, and people like me, decide, the hell with this, we've had enough, this is something we can do. We can't set up an oil rig in our backyard and start pumping oil out of the ground and change the fact that the United States is a net exporter or net importer of oil. We cannot change that. But I can change the fact that my family is a net importer of food. And that my neighborhood is a net importer of food. The hell with my country. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, just be honest, I can't focus on that right now. I, as an individual, can start out with the people that live under my roof, and then the people that I share fence lines with. And if I'll just do that, I can make that one little change. But do you know what I figured out last year? Based on all the emails and all the forum posts and just trying to keep track of it. Do you know how many gardens were created by listeners of the Survival Podcast in 2009? Over 1,000 new gardens. From one guy running his mouth into a recorder. I think I've met 10 of those 1,000 people face to face. You have more influence over your neighbors than I do. Do it by example. Do it by sharing. Learn these techniques. Learn to feed yourself. Because no one cares more about you having a full belly tomorrow than you. Government doesn't really care. They want you to have a full enough belly not to go out into the streets and spill blood. Or not to pull them out of their clown house in D.C. or your state capitol. Their interest in you eating is just that you eat enough that you leave them alone and don't affect the temperature of their swimming pool. And leave them alone so they can continue to draw in big bucks from lobbyists. But if push comes to shove, they'll let you go to the wolves, which will become, will be, will come right from your fellow man when he's hungry and when his family's hungry. And that's harsh, cold reality. It doesn't have to be and never has to come to fruition. You don't have to deal with these things if you act. And remember, when I talk about this, I'm never saying don't store food. Don't buy food for storage. I just did a whole show about how to do that. But the food production concept merges in together with that. To make sure that you can get through the shortfalls. And that you minimize those shortfalls in the first place. And above all, that you create liberty for yourself. Give yourself the freedom to have the vision. You live in a home that's paid for. In your backyard is food throughout nine of the 12 months at least, and a little bit that comes out of a greenhouse during the three coldest months of the year. You have a job that you enjoy because you only work when you want to, so you only work about 20 hours a week instead of the standard 60 that most people work now. Because I'm, I'm sorry, you know what, that hour to two hours you spend in the car every day, you're working because you're not doing what you want to do. The crap you bring home with you, The hour you need to cool off before you can even be part of your family, that's because of your job. So we cut that to a third, to what it should be. I don't think you can work less than 20, honestly, unless you're really passionate about what what you're doing and you just like it. And how about you give yourself that freedom back? And you have a spouse that does the same thing. Or a partner, or a group, or whatever your, your lifestyle choice is, where you can actually spend time actually doing the things that you love. Instead of believing in the bullshit dream that you've been sold of working until you're 70 years old, getting your golden watch and your pension, and all of that's gone. All of that's gone. Nobody gets a pension anymore. Nobody gets a gold watch anymore. No one stays at a company till 70. But we're still living by the paradigm: put all your money in retirement, put it all in the stock market. Don't worry about it. You won't need it till you're 70 or 60 or 5 or whatever anyway. And you know what? Here's what's funny. You know why you create a system like that? Because you know about 20 to 25% of those people will die. And they'll never get the opportunity to actually use that money and it'll get recycled into the society by being handed down to their heirs who did not work for it and won't appreciate it and will piss it away and start the cycle all over again when they hit about 40 and sit down with a financial advisor and realize they need to, fi- you know, retire someday. And another 20 to 25% of that generation will freaking die before they ever get the opportunity to live the dream. And a garden won't guarantee you that you get to live that dream. A system around you of perennial plantings that feed you throughout your year won't guarantee that you get to live that dream. But it's one positive step in the right direction. And if we ever do have the shit hit the fan, you have an additional support source of food. But I think more importantly, it follows our primary rule. It helps you live that better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. That's what it's really all about. Sometimes I look at what I'm doing and I say, is it enough? And I mean everything. I mean, am I doing enough with the show, with the forum, with the stuff that I'm putting together for you guys in my own personal life, with my own food storage? Am I moving fast enough? Am I doing enough? And then I ask myself a simple question. Are you happy? And are you passionate about life? And as long as I answer yes to the two of those questions, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And my answer to that, that question is, yes, you're doing enough. Don't do more right now. Because it will ruin your happiness, and it will ruin your passion. And whenever I answer that with no, I'm kind of miserable right now, then I ask why, and I correct that, and I move on with my life. But that's what life is supposed to be really all about. We weren't put here on this planet to live in a cubicle. To spend what What do most Americans probably spend, 10 hours a week in a metal box? Going down a highway listening to talk radio or uh, music or whatever and being angry at the people around us who don't want to be there either. Burning up one of the primary energy sources on the planet so that it's not going to be here in the future. You know, and I don't believe in man-made global warming because of your car. I've said that enough. But it ain't good to have 50 million cars running at one time. That exhaust is not good for us. But yet we keep doing it. Do you know where we spend most of our gasoline? Here's the reality, folks. It is not your car that burns the most gasoline in this country. And the most diesel fuel and the most, most of the oil burned in this country is actually burned to produce food. When you add it all up, the trucks that carry the food, the, ch- the planes that carry the food, the tractor that plows the field, the tractor that plow, that runs the harvester, Climate control, when you add it all up, the vast majority of fuel burned by the United States of America is burned in the production of food and the agricultural system. So, see how many problems are fixed if we just start feeding ourselves? See how many problems are fixed if we just went through North America, or went through the United States, and just killed one in every ten trees and planted something that produced food? where a tree was already growing, a tree that nobody takes care of, that's just there. If we pre- re- replace 10% of our trees, I think I figured it out one time, it's some insane number. It's, it's like 16 million uh, pounds of food just by doing that. And I was being pretty concerned. It was insane. It's enough to feed an awful lot of people for very little work and very low input. And it changes the dynamic of the entire country. This is the revolution. Some of you guys that wonder, when is Jack going to talk about the revolution, man? You know? When is Jack going to really get into the revolutionary spirit? What is he going to say? Yeah, it's time to take this country back. Yeah, these ass clowns got to go. This is the revolution. A choice to stop conforming to the bullshit that you've been fed since birth about how you have to live. Because the only person enforcing that rule on you right now in your life is you. And it's time to feed yourself. That's what I want for you today. I want you to feed yourself. Even if it's only 10% of your needs. I don't care as long as you start somewhere. Feed yourself. And learn and get a thirst and a hunger and a quest for knowledge. And plan your life. If you don't plan your life, life will be planned for you by events and circumstances. I will not be a 40 year old man living in the middle of a city that I don't want to be in, working a job that I don't want no matter how much it pays. That will not happen. I'll make it out before 40. I'll make it out before I think I'm officially 38, because I don't remember how old I am now. I don't know if I'm 38 and I'm going to turn 39 or 39 and I'm going to turn 40. I really could care less. But I know one thing I'm done. I'm done. And those of you that look at the show and think, well, man, he he got the show going, and that's, man, I've been working for this for 20 years. I've been working for this since I was a 17-year-old kid and joined the Army. I've been thinking about this for that long. I just finally found a way to kind of live my dream and get it done at the same time. One way or another, it was going to happen. We were already 70% there before I did this show. You guys just caught me at the end, and I'm glad you did, because I'm glad this is part of it. You know, my biggest fear today would be if I went back and never did this show, that I would still, by some other means, be very close this year to doing this. Probably June of this year, I'd still be moving to Arkansas. I'd have some other way that I was earning an income outside of the system. Everything else was already done. The debt was already paid off. The, the house in Arkansas was already purchased. The equity was already here. The, the, the stability to stand through the market crash was already done. Something tore at me and said, you got to be part of the solution, Jack. I don't know how to be part of the solution to my little inner voice. And it said, just start running your mouth. Maybe somebody will listen. Look at these other people. Look at what they're doing. Look at this family in California. Look how much food they produce on a little strip of land. Look at this crazy freaking libertarian named Chris Future. He podcasts from his car. He's no better than you. You can do this too. And as I started doing this show, I found out what really mattered to me. Changing the lives of people. I realize it's been what I've been doing my whole life. I've always been the mentor. I come into an organization as an employee. After two months, I'm the guy that people are coming to with problems, looking for solutions. Whether I'm paid to find them or not, that's what I did. Because it was who I am intrinsically, and the smartest thing I ever did in my life was I never denied that. Most people that have that ability deny it because they think they're being arrogant to say that they have that ability. It's only arrogant to say that you have an ability when you don't really have it. A guy that comes out and says, I'm the best basketball player in the world, well, if he's Michael Jordan in 1988, that's not arrogant. And I think that a lot of people, you're hurting yourselves because you won't admit what your real talents are. And you won't pursue them. And I want you to pursue them. And I want you to feed yourself. And I want you to realize that sometimes you're going to get a podcast like this. A half pat on the head, half kick in the ass, and a hodgepodge of motivation and, and practical advice. That's what it's going to be sometimes. Because it's what's in my heart. And because I give a shit about you. I want to say that again, and I'm not going to temper it in any way shape or form i give a shit about you if you listen to this show i care so many companies talk about listening to your customers i give a shit about mine and i think it's a better way to do business because if you care really care then it shapes everything that you do and every step you take with your business every step that you take with your operation says what does this do for my customer How does this help my customer? How does this help my listener? Is it good for my audience? And when the answer is no, you don't do it. No matter how much money anybody can throw in front of your face, if the answer is no, if you care, you won't do it. And if you do that, the business takes care of itself and it becomes profitable. Because in the end, if you take care of the customer, the customer keeps coming back. And if the customer keeps coming back, you thrive. That's exactly how a garden works. See, everything I don't care what, what you want to do with your life, grow a garden. Because the way I just told you to operate a business, that's how a garden works. If you take care of a garden, it keeps coming back. If you give the garden what it needs, it keeps coming back. If you don't buy into promises of a rich, full lawn with a chemical bag, because when you ask, is this good for the ecosystem, and the answer is no, and you say, well, then I'm not doing it, you get a perpetual system that feeds you. That's how you grow a business, just like a garden. Isn't that cool? Well, guess what? Anything you want to do successfully in life, draw your own analogies. But put your hands in the soil. Get your kids out there, put their hands in the soil. Learn to feed yourself. And that garden and the forest that you create around it will be the greatest teacher you'll ever have in your life and one of the greatest uh, sources of sustainability and liberty that any man can create for himself and if you do it right for future generations. Day, this has been Jack Spierko with another, another edition die, of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. you can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.